Hello, welcome to the special episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am one of your co-hosts, Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited because we get to have a special interview with the one and only Carson Winter. Hi, Carson. Hey, how's it going? Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. I uh, Before the episode, before we started recording, I was just sort of gushing about, about you as a as a horror writer. I just dig everything that you're doing. Uh, and so it's just so neat to get to talk to you and and to talk specifically about your upcoming soft targets, which is really mind blowing in lots of ways. <laughs> Aw, shucks. Thank yes. you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for writing as prolifically as you do too. I feel like you're always producing something which is much faster than my writing time of like a draft of something in 10 years. So I also appreciate just your you're constant coming up with these great ideas that haunt me. You know, I, I try to be like a shark and just keep moving forward. Um, that's that's just how I, it works for me. But it's also one of those things I know, like, all writing advice out there to me, I think, is um, slightly bullshit, depending on who, who it applies to. You know, there's I I work with, like, great writers who are totally the slow and steady types. They make work I admire um, and it's incredible you know there's lots of ways to do it there's no right way I I just happen I happen to be in the lane where I I got I got to keep moving and doing something but there's a lot of amazing work out there that's produced the opposite way to figure out what you like to do and do it well as a reader it just means that I get to have more of your writing faster so I'm, I'm that's the right way right more Carson Winter <laughs> is the correct way uh, before we to get saturate the market on Carson, you you should. That's that's pure saturation. People should be like, my gosh, look at how much of you know my bookshelf is just Carson Winter. Um, before right. we get started on our questions, would you mainly because I can't seem to say the press's name correctly? Would you give people the details they need to be able to find soft targets? Because right now, as of like into February, if you search on Amazon, even soft targets with your name, it just pulls up literal shooting targets. <laughs> so <laughs> what do people need to do to, to be able to find your novella? So first off, um, I believe Tenebris Press, um, that's who's publishing soft targets. It comes out on March 22nd. They, I believe they mostly do all of their sales through their website. Um, Good for I, don't, them. I don't, I don't actually know if they even do Amazon at all, which I think is kind of cool. And awesome. uh, they're, just incredible um, publishers in the indie press world. Um, working with them has been wonderful. But like the amount of work they put into their marketing and being able to get those sales, even while not using, you know, some of these bigger distribution platforms. And you know, you know I've uh, I talked to Matt, and you know, we we kind of have a enviable setup right now, and that we we live just across the river from each other. I'm, oh, I'm the sweet. first. Um, I'm the first author signing, I think, that's just in the Portland area. So, I mean, we get to do kind of cool, fun stuff where he orders a bunch of books. I can sign them and that's he can cool. send them out. But yeah, Soft Targets, March 22nd through Tenebris Press. Um, it is a story with um, that deals with some tough topics, a lot of gun violence, mass violence. You're an American. You probably... Um, know all about this dear listener unfortunately um but yeah we, content warnings are up front on the website so definitely decide if it's for you it's not an easy book and i you know 
I definitely won't be upset at anyone opting out for sure. It's just, you know, make sure it's for you. I think that's a great sort of warning because it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful book, but as someone that, that grew up not far from Columbine, as I was telling you, um, and had my school closed down for that shooting, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, it resonates right with, with where we are in America, where we shouldn't be, but where we are. So that's nice that, that you all have the sort of warnings of, of just what to expect in terms of content. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of, um, that was actually part of um, kind of the deal with this book. Um, we can get into it a little bit later, but they uh, they passed on it initially. Wow. Yeah. And um, but they came back. <laughs> they came back to me like six months later and they're like, you know what? We can't get this one out of our heads. We want to do this. I think we're ready for it now. But part of that is, you know, are you comfortable with like, content warnings being a big part of you know the promotional drive like that's going to be attached to your book that's going to be everywhere and for me i was like it's a no-brainer of course yeah totally yeah that's terrific so we're going to start with one of my favorite like icebreaker type questions because i just always feel that the answers tell me so much about a person so the question is if you could taste any intangible thing and it could be intangible because either it's lacking in form or it's imaginary if you could taste any intangible thing, what would you want to taste and why? Okay. I admit this one was like a tough one. Uh, I know. It's my favorite. When I, yeah. When I first looked at the question, I was like, oh, fuck. What is that? But then I realized like, oh, no, it, it reveals something uh, about me that I almost don't want to share, which is oh how gosh, corny so I am. Um, this is very John Lennon of me. But I think like what I'd want to taste is like the absence of anxiety. Oh, that's lovely. Like just pure calm, unadulterated calm. That's nice. Oh, I bet it tastes so good. Yes. <laughs> Two scoops, please. Yes. I think I think I would want to taste imagination because I feel like it'd be oh. an intriguing taste. But but I think that's only because my I feel like imagination would also be the lack of anxiety, right? So like yeah, we just have the undertones of of no concern about the future and about my place in it and all that stuff. Oh, I, I like feel that. imagination would be like a very uh, rich and layered taste. It would be you, you would have a lot to talk about with it. I feel like a lot you to would. share. You would. Whereas, like, even though you're describing the lack of something, I feel like it would have a very distinct taste. Right, the lack of anxiety. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and it would be it'd be that thing that you're like, you know, I'm a I'm ready to relax, to have a couple scoops, and then yeah. watch some some TV. Like that would be such a good taste. Oh, that was a fantastic answer. I ask my students that every semester, and you know, I'll get I get lots of joys and hopes because apparently all my students are like really kind, wonderful people. And then every so often, someone will put like darkness or like the taste <laughs> of someone's soul, and I'm like, these are the people I probably identify with more. But uh, <laughs> I think your answer your takes the takes the win for for now. And I think it also makes sense when you think about your canon of work, right? Uh, that these are themes that that keep coming up. All of your characters, your primary characters, have this anxiety driving them uh, in different ways. So that's yeah, they do for sure. Um, I think you know anxiety in the horror genre is. Um, you know, has it has a very long history. Um, I always think back, you know, like to the Telltale Heart and stuff. Of course, you know, 
Um, that character's anxiety is a little bit different than mine. I think he, I think he very much well earned his anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm glad that you made that distinction. You're like, that this is not where, where my anxiety lies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause that would be disturbing. Yeah. But, but, you know, haunting of Hill house, I mean, is, is grounded in that idea of, yes. of anxiety. And uh, there's just so many, so many great texts that are doing I, that. I would say the haunting of Hill house to me is like the definitive anxiety tale yes. um yes. it's just everything about it. It, it 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 so perfectly mimics to kind of um that social anxiety you get where i feel like the horror doesn't come through like ghosts it just comes through like the changing tones in conversation where suddenly yes. people are like really jolly and friendly and welcoming and, and suddenly they're like kind of like oh kind of being like a little accuser and it, it's almost like this chill wind just sweeps through a scene but nothing's really different it's just no. you know it's just people talking but it, it's scary it's frightening yes yeah the grounds people always crack me up with their line of like you know but we don't come at night. But really, you know, Hill House is not is not the scary thing. I think you're right that it's that idea of being in such an intimate situation with absolute strangers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that makes for interesting things that are happening with, you know, the I don't know if you saw the Netflix adaptation where, you know, grounds it in this family. But it's also a family of people who don't know each other anymore. Right. So so that comes up a lot. I'm like one of the few people who just could not stand the Netflix. <gasps> I know, right? Like, yeah. I feel I am I am so out of step with everyone else, but I was I was almost enraged by it. But Interesting. And I, I think it's because of my, like, connection with the source material. The things yeah. I like about it, I felt like just weren't present in the show as far as tone. Yeah. Um, and I also felt there was, was a little insulting to me that so much of the story's um, style and like filmic language, I felt, were lifted more from, you know, Blumhouse and Stephen King mm -hmm. than really feeling um, specifically Jacksonian. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like if I divorced it entirely from the source material, I can I can I can see what people you know, have connected to for sure. But I, I always have it in the back of my mind, like this, this just does not feel, this does not feel like the atmosphere of the book. No, to me. no, I definitely treat it as a text that just happens to have the same name <laughs> because it's, it's not a Gothic text, right. In the same way that the Jackson builds for us and everything that she delivers. Yeah. I think, I think you're very correct that it's to describe it as more Blumhouse and feel is, is, is spot on. My students are about to watch it and read the book for my adaptation class that I'm teaching. And I'll be in, I'll be intrigued to see their thoughts because many of them have only seen the Netflix show and oh, they haven't okay. ever read the book. And we're going to like split it up where they're going to start watching the show and then we'll read the book and then they'll finish the show. So I'm, I'm intrigued to know if like people's opinions will change depending on how they experience the two in relationship with one another. Because like you, right, I read the book first um, mm -hmm. and it's hard to divorce the two. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest differences too is that like the the show um potentially to its credit, not not necessarily to me, but a lot of people <laughs> I think responded well to this is that the show feels a lot more warmer. Like it has that feeling of genuine human connections, people who care about each other. Yes. Um where the book feels a lot chillier to me. Yes. It's everyone's kind of a little bit at arm's length and like 
there's sometimes hints of warmness warmth but it's uh it, it, it's fleeting it comes and goes it's almost like a weapon in and of itself um so I, i'd actually be really interested hear what your uh, students think too yeah i'll be excited it's interesting that you describe um that that being an appeal for you in jackson's text because i think you can see that the, that type of relationship in soft targets right between ollie and our narrator where um you know it's it's a dysfunctional relationship as much as it is the sort of definitive relationship for these two individuals so that's interesting i can see why you might lean more towards Jackson having read so much of your stuff. Oh yeah, totally. And that's a, that's a really good comparison too. I wouldn't have thought of that, but totally it does show up. What? You wouldn't just automatically compare yourself to Shirley Jackson. <laughs> you have to have the hubris. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, Haunting of Hill House is a good example, but what are like some, some text, cinematic, literary, game-based that you recommend for horror creators who are really wanting to better understand the genre, how to create in the genre. Like these are the texts that you say before you start writing, maybe you should read, watch these. What would some of those texts be? Oh, geez. I mean, I think, I think there's so many for one and you can go in a lot of different directions too, because, you know, I kind of speak as a a weird fiction writer. My influences are going to be a little bit different than someone who is like earnestly pursuing, you know, splatter punk or something. Um, But for me, like, I think it's important to have a foundation in the genre as a whole. So, you know, read, read your classics, get your, your Poe, your Dracula, your Frankenstein, probably touch on Richard Matheson, um, you know, that kind of stuff, Algernon Blackwood, uh, Shirley Jackson, 100%. But um, beyond that, I feel like once you kind of get a feel of where the genre has started, I think, you know, it's been in forms forever. Um, But uh, once you kind of get those, um, you know, early 20th century authors out of the way, you read them, you can kind of follow the threads that you really appreciate. Um, For me, my personal favorites, the ones that I find really valuable as a writer, um, Brian Evanson, um, his collections, his use of literary minimalism and horror, Mm. and his very, um, very specific sense of the uncanny and the unsettling um, makes him one of my biggest influences. Uh, Same for Thomas Ligotti, though he has many different traits, but his... um, the fact that Ligotti's work is impossible to divorce from Ligotti himself and his worldview, mm-hmm. his philosophical pessimism. I think that's really important to me. And actually like it kind of made me, I, I think I spent a lot of my time before getting to the point of being published, uh, doing a lot of Ligotti imitation mm. and what kind of made me kind of form the beginning of a paradigm time shift for me. was, um, I paid for a critique from Nicole Cushing. She kind of asked a similar question, like, mm-hmm. you know, what what do you like? Who do you like? You know, what are you going for here? And I dropped Ligotti, and she said, "Well, I mean, the world doesn't need another Ligotti. Mm. They need a uh, a Carson, or you know, whoever you are." And right. um, I kind of put that in my head, and it made me think about like, why why do I actually like Ligotti so much? Because it's not. It's not just, you know, the the stories themselves, the style. There, there's more to it. And I think what really came to me is I like the fact that 
um, Gotti's on every page of a Ligotti story. You mm. can feel his presence. It's it's all him. Nobody else could write a Ligotti story but Ligotti. And it made me think a lot more about like, okay, well, what do I bring to the table? Like, what makes me me? What can I, what like flights of whimsy that are so unique to my perspective as a person can I put into my fiction? And I really started thinking about that. And I felt like my ideas got um, more personal, but also more interesting after that. So I would challenge any writers to really think about, you know, what makes them unique and really seriously think about it and try to, you know, write from that perspective. Don't try to be anyone else but yourself as, you know, corny as it can be. So you say that you've, you've thought about what, what it would look like to have Carson Winter be on every page. What, what does, I like, how would you explain what, what you are as a, as a writer? I know how I would explain you as a writer, but like, what would you say? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it comes, it's, my writing is often, um, revolves around anxiety. I think, um, it's typically pretty conversational, um, written in kind of a character's voice. I think there's usually a high concept um, speculative fiction element at mm -hmm. the heart of the stories um, that, you know, I think we're all just kind of an amalgam of our influences. And, you know, I like, I like fun, entertaining reads. And I also like, you know, um, literary horror fiction. And I kind of meet them in the middle and come from, you know, the perspective of a unapologetically adult American, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. somebody actually, I think it was Matt at Tenebris. He said, soft targets is the most, uh, the most American book we've ever published. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. And I, I think that's something I navel gaze about a lot is like, you know, I don't, feel American. I don't, um, I'm not a flag waver. I don't, I'm not necessarily, I'm not proud of being an American. And yet so many of my thought processes, actions, you know, are defined by the culture I grew up in. Um, I am kind of an American, whether I want to be or not, um, just because of the culture that surrounds me. So, I do think um, a lot of my writing does have kind of an e examination of American culture in it. That makes perfect sense to me. And, and soft targets, of course, you know, there's the examination of, of gun violence and workplace violence, but there's also so much of the narrative that is, is built on this, this principle we as, as Americans and as an American culture have bought into, and that is just this capitalist idea that you know your merit and your worth is determined by your output right? yeah. and then and then the question becomes well what happens if if your output put can be ignored right on, on any mm -hmm. day um and there's that part like even as i was reading it so so without really giving much away there's days that ollie uh the the roommate and best friend of the main narrator takes off and i remember being like oh he sounds like a loser. And it's like, why? Because he's taking days off from work. And, you know, and I had to even like stop myself from just entering into that sort of perpetual myth mm -hmm. that we have built. And so I can see, I can see that playing. You're also really good at playing with that idea that all the things we think are fixed constants are really not right. Time, 
place, <laughs> memory, identity, all of that is 100% up for grabs in, in the things I've read of yours. So I've read Reunion Special, I've read your piece in, in the Bloodlines book, and then and then I've read Soft Targets. And so maybe you don't do it in everything, but but those three as a pattern, right? I'm like, oh yeah, what is time? What is yeah. place? <laughs> you know, are we in the past, present, or future? And then I, that's that's also a really interesting element that is very specifically you. Uh, oh as, yeah as I, I totally see that and yeah thank you um because that's and so funny you mentioned that about ollie and stuff because um that was that was kind of me coming to grips with like frustrations about my own co-workers and i yeah. i kind of at the time i wrote this i worked at a grocery store and i i was just i was struggling i i'd been there maybe like eight years or something you know i was um either you know, late twenties or just turned 30. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I don't want to be here. I'm miserable every day. This, this doesn't mesh with who, who I saw myself as, which also made me, you know, do a bunch of navel gazing about like, you know, my own internalized classism about like, why do I hate myself so much for working in a grocery store when it's, you know, it's a job like any other. And, you know, I, I shouldn't like it, do I also hold these feelings to my coworkers? And I realized, mm -hmm. well, unfortunately I kind of do, and I don't want to. Um, so I was thinking a lot about that and that all like went straight into the book is like kind of me wrestling with being a, uh, a, um, an essential worker near the beginning of the pandemic and not liking what I was doing, trying to figure out what I thought of myself and my job and how, um, and also just kind of like that this was this was the image projected to everyone else in my life. So in a way, um, it's kind of funny now because now I, I, I've been to school now. I work an office job now. And at the time when I was writing Soft Targets, the office setting was like, it was aspirational for me. Mm. <laughs> I was like, I, and I was trying to distance itself it from my real job at the time just because I've I didn't, I didn't want to write a manifesto, essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now I'm on the other end of it where I'm like, oh, man, do I do I want anyone at my current work to know about this book? Like, are they going to get it? Because now it, like, actually matches up too much to my real life. Uh, oh, dear heavens. Yeah, that's that's actually as I was reading that, I was wondering, you know, like, it's tricky to, to know when you're deciding to go places that horror has to go, right? That you're like, but really I'm a good person and I like kittens, but also read the <laughs> darkness of my mind, you know, and that's that's tricky with something like this, especially because it's first person narration and and all of that. And without a pen name too. So <laughs> you're really yeah. just like, I'm asking for it at this point, I think. And I would assume, I mean, I've never known another Carson Winter. I don't know if you've like Googled or there are there a lot of Carson Winter singular, no plural out there. <laughs> I haven't seen any. Um, I haven't noticed any. I think it's. I think it's me. Yeah, yeah. That also, it's hard to be like, oh no, there's lots of us out there. It's that other guy with a red beard. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad you talked about the the quiet levels of horror and soft targets because I think that's where it really doesn't pull its punches. You know, I mean, there's a lot of really intense and, and dramatic things that happen, but it the parts that disquieted me the most were just those dark places that we often find ourselves in and want to ignore. So this question, I'm going to try to keep it fairly spoiler-free in how I ask it, but then you get to decide how many spoilers you're providing in the answer. 
And it's sort of like a two-parter of like, what was the greatest challenge in writing this novella? But also, like, what do you feel is the biggest accomplishment that you're like, I did that, you know, that like source of pride in, in finishing this, this particular work? Okay, so I think the biggest challenge for me was, um, I think it was doing the kind of mental work beforehand of just kind of untangling the knots, uh, examining what I was feeling and being able to formulate those initial ideas and follow those kind of flights of fancy and recognize those patterns in my life, you know, the the dark jokes at work, seeing the fucking little laminate they gave us at my grocery store that said, you know, uh, uh, when a shooting happens, not if, when. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> it's terrifying. I was, yeah, there's just all these little elements that I was, um, you know, I, I kind of look back and see, like, you know, baby Carson putting the pieces together, the early ideas forming. But I, really, I think it was just a lot of, you know, mental work. But I think what I'm most proud of and also one of the most difficult parts, to write a book that uh, wasn't exploitative that was a book about um mass shootings about violence but um didn't treat the violence itself as escapism um one of my kind of mottos when i was writing it is like no tyler durden's that's that was what i was thinking mm -hmm. of you know because i think books film like fight club and stuff i think are easy comparisons yeah. to make with what i was doing because it's about you know angry middle-class white guys interacting with their culture being upset by capitalism and trying to find some kind of um freedom through transgression but i i always felt a little i and for one i loved fight club when i was a teenager because i was a teenager right um i was a teenage boy and that was a very cool movie for me when i was a teenage boy but as i got older i grew a lot more uncomfortable with it i think and it was mostly because of the way the movie and maybe to a lesser extent the book has critique with the charisma of its character Tyler Durden which i think at the end you know um um he he's an outlet of escapism uh, you don't necessarily come away you know fuck capitalism you think more like i wish i was tyler durden or something like that you know so i i wanted was not writing any tyler durdens i wanted my characters to be um kind of the you'd work with and that that's kind of what i was that's that's what i was most proud of yeah that's great and that actually sets me up nicely for for my next question because it was a a bold and i think right correct move but it, but it was a bold move to write this particular story in first person because you know we're you know um there are multiple lines where your narrator is trying to get us to to see Ollie as the bad guy, right? Um, you know, like, this is all Ollie's fault. You know, if he never would have told me about all of this. Uh, and where the novella ends up is, is a challenging place to be with a first-person narrator, right? With someone that we're identifying with. So I, I guess there's part of this that I'm just curious to know why, especially with that in mind, you decided to go ahead and place this in a first-person narrator, but also what do you think is valuable or, or meaningful in a work of horror of having a first-person narrator? So for me, 
I think first person itself is um, it's it's almost impossible to separate from the horror genre in itself. Um, mm-hmm. I think he actually has some interesting things to say about that in his uh, his metafictional essay notes on a horror story where he talks about a first person being the best mode to tell a horror story but i also felt like for me like i couldn't ignore the complicity in the narrative that Mm -hmm. i didn't want to set these characters apart with distant third person would offer because i feel like these characters are your average american they're parts of me like but it it would do them a disservice and the reader i feel like to ignore those i think it it just makes the book that much more uh punchier readable barrier <laughs> to hear it hear all of these horrible things said in a voice you recognize day that makes that makes sense and, and that's certainly the affect right and reading it that it's very hard to to not acknowledge those moments that we've all said things that it's like should we like I have a tendency to be you know someone will be like how are you doing and like I just want to lay down and die I don't really mean that at all right like that's me being 100% dramatic and also me being just like super dark person what I really mean is I just want to close my eyes and take a nap right but like that language and you know just the, the things that we casually say right when we think that there's no consequence and then discovering you know what that might look like in a world where consequence becomes a more fluid idea is is really neat and i i think it worked well i don't i don't want to say that this this wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been first person but i i don't think it would have had the impact i think you made the right decision uh about that for those of you that noticed a sort of weird moment where the video did things that you were not anticipating if you're watching this in video form and you may have seen the chat pop up we were having some technical difficulties uh that's why some of Carson's answers, and hopefully not mine, but it's possible my audio too, uh, sound a bit repetitive, but I've tried to clean that up in, in post and we've messed with things and hopefully this will be better, but we appreciate all of you having that weird moment where we stopped recording, <laughs> talked <laughs> through our issues and then came back and hopefully, you know, it has fixed itself, but Zoom is more or less where I hope your next horror will be. Cause I feel like it's like, <laughs> is it real? Is it not? These are all the things you ask on a regular basis. Okay. When you're not writing and you're not working, you're not doing all the other things on your plate. What, what are you reading or watching playing right now lately? Probably horror related, but if there's just <laughs> something that you're like, no, everyone must play, you know, animal crossing, then, then I'm happy to hear about that too. <laughs> Oh, geez, man. Okay, so um, what I've been reading lately is I've actually, I feel like since the pandemic happened, it killed my reading in a way. Mm. Like, I was reading a fraction of what I did um, a year. And I, of course, I think the yearly goals and stuff is a little bullshit and it kind of make it gamifies reading in a weird way. But I was like, you know, I was kind of disappointed in myself. I was like, oh, man, you know, I'm not reading enough. Um, but one of the things I think I've realized is that, um, I need, I just need to pick my books better. Um, cause lately, you know, I've, I've really been enjoying reading again. It hasn't Good. felt like a chore. I've, you know, I've read so many, um, great books lately. Uh, one of the ones I read lately that was kind of just a, a weird curveball was, um, the 1970s, uh, newspaper crime novel, Fletch by Gregory McDonald. A lot of people will oh, yeah. know the adaptation with Chevy Chase in the 80s. 
Um, and I enjoyed that. That was just like a wicked, smart, you know, clippy crime novel, um, you know, just moving at a breakneck pace. I love that. And it also has just like great, you know, minimalist writing, which I'm a huge fan of. I love great examples, great examples of good minimalism. Um, I read Caleb Stevens collection, if only a heart. And I really enjoyed that recently. Um, right now I'm reading come with me by, uh, Ronald Malfi. And that's my first book by him, but I am just, I am devouring it right now. It is so good. It's just like a page turning, I'd guess like supernatural mystery thriller Mm -hmm. horror. I'm, I'm, I'm not far enough into it to really give it a genre, but I was reading it and I was just like, okay, this is, I need, I need to just gift myself more moments like this where I'm just reading something that just draws me in and compels me to read the next page because I feel like so often especially in horror which I call a very self-consciously literary genre um, we feel kind of this urge the social pressure you know to read a lot of high-minded literary fiction a lot of literary horror I love literary horror but the truth is is that being literary just isn't good enough sometimes sometimes you know we can't say all of it is good equally um you know literary doesn't mean good i guess is what i'm really trying to say so it's just it's just been so nice to kind of free myself from that kind of mental shackle of like you know reading the the thing that i feel like i'm supposed to read mm-hmm. um, because it just came out it's cool whether i vibe with the author or not and you know just kind of going to the bookstore and finding something that looks real fucking cool and sitting down with it and like you know, laying with my cat and reading for a couple yeah. hours. It's been really nice. I think that's particularly important in horror too. I have a very long, slightly complicated, probably incorrect theory about how, you know, it's hard to do horror well in long form literature because most of the time we don't like characters, right? We're not in horror in a way that that it's easier if it's a 90 minute thing, it's easier if it's a short story, but you know, there's a huge difference between reading Flannery O'Connor's short stories where you're like, yeah, everyone's human's terrible and reading, which I've never managed to make myself do, you know, her like novels where you're just like, ah, we're still 200 pages into everyone being a terrible person. Uh, And I I think that that's part of that literary horror instinct, right? Is Mm. that sometimes literary horror like you're miserable <laughs> during it, right? You're glad afterwards, but it can it can just feel overwhelming in a way that like I'm reading my way through Steve Alton's The Meg series. And every okay. book is just like, look at the giant shark. And I'm like, yay, you know, and sometimes <laughs> it's just where I think you know you want to be. And and that's actually one of the things I really enjoy about about the length of your works is that you don't feel the need to make it be a full-length novel simply because that's how most of us read stuff, right? Yeah. Like I appreciate that you've you've really hit your stride and, and that novella length, which is where I think a lot of horror should be, right? Just enough for us to like know how dark things are, but not so much that, you know, 300 pages later, we're, we're still trying to make our way through these terrible people's lives. For sure. And, you know, I, I love novellas. I think they're wonderful. And I... I... Even when I try to write a novel, my novels, my my longest work to date that I just finished uh, the other week, and I've uh, been I've been subbing out 
it, it's uh, it's my epic, and it's at like fifty four thousand words. It's still a really, really trim ass novel. Yes. Um, I just I write lean. Um, that's just kind of who I am. And you know, I another actually on short fiction. Uh, one thing I've really been enjoying is I just sat down the other day, and I was going through um Tenebrous Press's um best of anthology, Brave mm. New Weird. Uh, which I have a story in, in Haskins. I'm very proud that it got selected for this. But I was um, reading just some other authors' stories that I know and poking around. I got to say, uh, Warren Benedetto, he wrote just a fucking fantastic mm. piece of uh, short fiction called Blame. It was it blew my mind. It was so good. Um, also, Luciano Murano uh, also had a fantastic story in that. Um, I've just cherry picked a little bit, but I think I'm going to actually settle in and uh, just read the whole thing um, because I they they sold me. They sold me. They have great taste, obviously, um, not just because I'm included. Right. right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I've only it's only been recently that I've really begun to appreciate short stories. Uh, you know, they they're different. Right. By the time I, I sometimes I feel like by the time I get in. Right? It's time to exit out. But I, I do feel like horror is in many ways meant right for some of these shorter form literary methods of, of communicating things, because then you have to sit there right quietly with your thoughts uh, afterwards. And certainly you give us that. OK, I feel like. Just in general as a horror writer, but I also feel like you, Carson, specifically, have to decide, you know, what boundaries, what taboos, what limits you're willing to cross in your fiction. How do you how do you make those hard decisions? And this as I was typing this question, I, I realized it sounded judgy, but I, <laughs> I wasn't meaning like, how do you make those decisions, Carson? But truly just like, how do you keep in mind where you know you need to go as a writer with what's going to make your readers be horrified and, and maybe in ways that are, you know, past the point of no return. I, I think it really all just comes down to, um, you know, having a good sense of authenticity <clears throat> for me, like, you know, there are boundaries I wouldn't cross, but they're pretty boring boundaries. Um, they'd be like stuff like, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable telling someone else's story. You know, mm. I, I'm probably not going to write, you know, a a trans character specifically dealing with trans issues, you know, that's not my story to tell. Yeah. I, I would represent a trans character and have them deal with my, deal with issues that I know well, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think it'd be uh, fair to them or the audience for me to co-op that story. And, you know, same for any marginalized group. That's, mm-hmm. that's something I, I wouldn't be willing to do. Um, for me, I think that boundary is really just set by, you know, can I, does, does this experience come from within me? Does it feel honest to who I am? And that's, that's really all it is. As far as like, you know, the, uh, you know, the violence, the gore, the transgression, all of that to me, that's just the window dressing, you know, um, it, it, it all just has to come from a place of authenticity. I think my students would, benefit from hearing that answer, right? Because, you know, they there's always that question that they ask at the start, which is like, what lines are off limits? And, you know, I joke and then like, tell them that I'm dead inside. So they, there's no lives they can cross that will offend me. But, but really, it's more that, right? Because I do mm-hmm. say, but, right, you, you can't be 
harming bodies that are not your own simply for the sake of harming bodies that are not your own, right? And I think that's a lovely answer. Okay, you are publishing through a press whose name I still can't pronounce properly, and I'm not even going to try because I don't want Matt to judge me um, before I get him in an interview. But what inspired you to to go ahead and make the decision to to publish through a smaller indie press, not just once, but multiple times, because you have this short story in the anthology, and you also have another work coming out down the line, like in September yeah. or October of 2023. So obviously, something about this press is really working for you. Why why go indie? Well, I think, for one, I kind of have to acknowledge that when you're kind of a smaller writer, um, there, there's not as much of a choice. So really, I, I consider myself lucky that I have, I not only, you know, got an indie publisher interest in this, but that I got the one that I did. Because um, I'm sure, you know, everybody would love to go straight to fucking Penguin and get, you know, sure. a six-figure deal. Um, but the reality of writing is there's a lot of competition, and there's a lot of voices, and um, you're dealing with kind of the subjective whims of an individual editor. So you have to go in and acknowledge the, the deck is stacked against you no matter what. That being said, um, what caught my eye about Tenebris is that I thought they had a great aesthetic. Um, they were really active on showing themselves on social media. They talked a lot about themselves, their values, their ideas. Um, so when, and also they branded themselves as a place that deals in new weird horror, which is exactly my genre. So here was a cool publisher with a great sense of values and ethics. And, um, they published exactly the kind of shit I was writing. So I was like, oh, well, no fucking yeah, doubt. I'm going to yeah. commit to them. Um, and as I was talking about earlier, um, I sent soft targets to them and they, uh, they rejected it and, yeah. but it was the nicest rejection I've ever gotten. Um, I talked with Alex Woodrow, the editor there, and she's just brilliant. She's great. Um, and it was so overwhelmingly kind for them to give such mm -hmm. transparency to me about the process. Tell me exactly where I stood, you know offer advice on placing it other places and um just being there to talk about it which i you never expect that as a writer from someone who rejects you you you're trained to take the hit and move on um so it was it just it immediately came out that they were like lovely people to work with yeah and um down the road they had another novella call and i happened to have another novella and i sent it to them and um also, I had another project co-written with uh, Jolie Tumajan, which will be coming out in October, post-haste manner. And uh, they got back to me and were like, hey, um, is that Soft Target still available? And I was like, well, yeah. And I couldn't imagine seeing, having them on my radar now, seeing them market their books, seeing how they promote, seeing the obvious care they put into like the art. That's the other thing. Matt comes from like a comics background, so he's really, oh. he's really clued into like visual art. He has, he knows a lot of artists. He has like a vision that he wants to kind of put out there. That's great. And yeah, it was it's awesome. So they were like, "Hey, we'll, we'll take them all," and uh, which was like probably the 
best possible outcome for me as a um, no-name writer is that they, they wanted it all and I was happy to give it to them. I, I couldn't be in better hands, honestly. I just, I've, I've loved every second of working with them. And it, I won't lie that the part of me that resonated with your answer about wanting to be able to taste what not anxiety feels like. Sometimes sometimes it can feel anxiety provoking for me and I'm not even on the inside of just knowing how many voices we can now hear, right? Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, how cool is it that about how many voices we get to hear? Because, you know, there are people like Matt and Alex who are going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we get to hear from not just the four people that occupy the horror bookshelf right at, at Barnes and Noble. Uh, and that's, yep. that's really neat. And that's, that's exciting. It's exciting to see their lineup. Um, they were kind enough to, to share with me, you know, things so that I could see about arcs. And I was like, Oh my gosh, the, the, the hardest part was I had to decide, like, I can't do them all because, you know, I should probably sleep at some point, but I was, I mean, just reading them all, it just, and then thinking about it as a collection, right. As what this press is putting out is really exciting too. And that was the other thing is like, I, you know, talking with them, getting a sense, like, I kind of felt like I, I, they were, I was kind of lucking out here because I felt like they, I was seeing them before they were big. And I had a feeling they would get big yeah. just because of the care they put into their releases and that those would find an audience. And, you know, if you're going to tie your name to something, you know, you, you can't tie it to anything better than, um, you know, something you think is going to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. You get to have some say in the future and where we go next in the horror genre. What would be your answer? Where do you want us to go next? Or where do you think we're going that you're excited, right? If, if it's something that's happening now, but like, what's, what needs to be next for horror? You know, what I would really like to see would be a, um, an increase in um, weird fiction's mainstream presence. I I think we're edging towards it. We're getting closer. I think there's weirder works out there that are gaining attention, um, especially in film. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes it seems like they just exist to confound audiences. But I, I do see um, some kinship with a lot of the weird fiction I read. Uh, movies like Skinamarink, I think, is... Mm -hmm super experimental um defiantly strange it is yes. um proudly inaccessible i love seeing stuff like that but there's even stuff like uh you know annihilation from years back um that's you know a high profile adaptation of uh, a vandermeer weird fiction mm -hmm. novel i think we can we'll hopefully see more projects like that coming out in the future um where weird fiction becomes a um, a genre in and of itself, not just a small um, subsect of the horror genre. Yeah, and, and this um, I think of, which is this not a horror film, but the the film Everything Everywhere All at Once, right? And, yeah, and and just how well that film has done in every realm right like it's a it's a critical darling it's it seems to be a fan favorite it was an amazing film and i think i think you're right that if ever we're going to get there now now is sort of the time because 
the times couldn't be weirder, right? Like we survived yeah. a global pandemic and now we act like it never even happened. If you wrote that in fiction, I'd be like, Carson, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. But we do live in, in these, I think, increasingly absurdist moments. And, and that would be exciting, I think, to, to see. Yeah, I, I'm loving the uh, the absurdity that is coming into uh, more mainstream productions. I would actually, I think, you know, going back to your earlier question, there's one thing I would describe myself, you know, I'd say I write absurdist horror um, at its heart. And I, I love to see it because, um, yeah, there is so much about our reality that is absurd. And it doesn't take, uh, it doesn't take much exaggerating to get to that place. No, a reunion special is another really good example, right? Where if you just describe the premise, it's about, you know, reality TV, which just right there, you're like, no, mm -hmm. reality TV is a real thing, you know? And like, we have mm -hmm. these, these specials that we've, and, but you keep reading and there's too much of, of your stories that are actually real, right? Like the, the things that are, are not real are just these tiny little parts sometimes. And that's, that is where, for me, so much of the horror lies in your works, right? Because I'm like, haha, nope, actually been there, seen that, you know, and I think that's, that's really exciting to, to see how you do that. I, I won't lie, sometimes it's hard to, to read, for me, to, to read a lot of weird and absurd horror because sometimes I just want brain candy, right? And that yeah. is never going to be brain candy. But when I'm ready to, to have my mind put into places that I may not recover from. Uh, that's a great place to go. So as you begin to continue inundating the horror genre, which is all things Carson, you can start making it more absurd. But what what should people be excited for from you next? So you mentioned you have the, the Post Manor. Post Haste Manor. Post Haste Manor, sorry. Piece coming out. What else are you, what else is in the, the shoot? Oh, man. Okay. So I I have an upcoming story coming out with uh, Seize the Press, I believe in April, March or April. Um, Soft Targets, of course, comes out March 22nd. I'm excited for people to read that. Post Haste Manor comes out in October, way out there. But that's a that's a really weird fucking project. I hope people Excellent. vibe with it's uh, we don't need we barely even know what to call it. It's so weird. I'm so I, I excited. <laughs> I usually call it a shared collection. Um, but uh, yeah, it's co-written by Jolie uh, Tumajon. And we just we just went wild. It was it was it was one of those projects just born out of like, hey, you seem cool. Do you want to work together? That's and then we just, you know, threw some DMs at each other and we're like, yeah, let's write something <laughs> about like the rise and fall of some haunted house. Oh, and then cool. we you know, there's 10 short stories, very short stories, 2,000 words each, and then a co-written novella from two different protagonists that oh, kind of no. interact and intersect through time and space. And it Ooh. is truly us just letting our hair down and getting weird, um, which is very exciting. Um, otherwise, I those are the major projects I have come in. There's some that I can't uh, quite reveal yet. And there's sure. probably... Uh, oh, I do have a very weird um, kaiju story coming out in the Monster Layers anthology through Dark Matter, uh, edited by Anna Madden, I believe. And um, that'll be uh, pretty cool if you like post-apocalyptic serial killer wizards hiding in the bones <laughs> of, a, of a kaiju. Um, 
as if, one does, right? If, that, if that's like your specific vibe, you're going to love this story. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, when you said that it's weird, and I was like, okay, if, if Carson has a has a meter where like normal is already probably weird, how weird does weird have to be? But then you answered it. So yeah. that, that sounds... <laughs> That sounds exciting. And of course, like you said, you're you're always writing and, and working on on more stuff. In fact, I'm gonna interview you and Jolie uh in sometime in September because I'm I'm really excited to read excited that, that particular work. And and like I said, the the list of the things that are coming out are just phenomenal. And and it was really a matter of like having to pick and choose which ones I had time for. So people should definitely you said that they have a site, right? Yes. Tenebrouspress.com, okay. uh, I believe. Okay. Because they are not giving money to our capital overlords. Okay. That's oh. <laughs> as as it should be. Um, and their books are... look gorgeous, too. Like, everyone should just go and look. Even if you don't want to buy anything, look at their books. They are gorgeous books. And do they sell physical copies or are they yep. mainly do? Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. We uh, we actually, we have a special... Um, it won't it won't be out by this when this airs but right now we are doing a special pre-order bundle for soft targets that has like you know a coffee mug um that you oh, like cool. see at a workplace a, a shirt with like a printer going through the window and a uh, special edition of the book the physical book that um will be signed by me but uh <clears throat> By the time this is out, um, there'll be uh, the book only pre-orders coming out. And those okay. uh, those will be very cool too, and I, I hope people really enjoy them because the art um, the art is by Blackie Shepard, who's a comics artist in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and it is just awesome art. You can hope as a writer for like a better cover. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a really pretty cover, and it's. It's nice to have it be in physical form, right? Sometimes that's yes. that's the hardship of of doing indie uh, or self publishing, right? Is like you can't have that thing that you can just cling to, uh, for better or worse. An object that's makes cool. it feel real, you know. You got to hold your hands. It's it's the result of all the the labor and the thinking and the 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 stress of submitting and wondering, like, oh, you know, is this ever gonna sell anywhere which was actually the funniest part about this book that it would be like really my uh like indie press debut this is like the first book i've had a publisher with that's just my name on the cover mm -hmm. you know it's just me it's a carson winter book and it was the the one that i would always joke like oh yeah i'm never gonna fucking sell this one yeah that does feel well, very weird, right? <laughs> that does yeah. feel like again, it's it's the premise to to the next book. At some point, I hope there'll be a book that's about an indie horror writer named like Warson Kenter or something like that, right? <laughs> and you'll just kind of like show us, and we'll be like, no, that's not real. And you're like, this was my yesterday. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Carson. It's such a delight getting to talk to you, uh, as as it is every time I get I get the privilege of talking with you. And thank you for also writing. And writing the stuff that I get to read, it's it's really good. So for those of you listening to this episode, if I've timed things correctly, it's coming out before Soft Targets will be released so that you have time not to get this super cool bundle, but to definitely get your copy of the book. And you should, because if if any of the things that you've heard today make you sound, you know, get you excited, Soft Targets is for you. It's not maybe for everyone, but it's for you, whoever you are. <laughs> And thank you so much, Carson. This has really been lovely.
Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. You always ask such thoughtful questions and it, uh, it, it makes me live out my writer fantasy of, uh, you know, being able to talk about my work with, uh, someone who's engaged with it on, uh, such a intellectual level. So thank you. Absolutely. And to all of you listening, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares and have a spooktacular day. Carson Winter is a minimalist weirdo, a conversational absurdist, and a vehemently bleak-minded artist making his home in the Pacific Northwest. His fiction has appeared in Vastarian, Apex, and Redstone Press's Split Scream series. His novella Soft Targets is available now through Tenebris Press. You can find Carson on Twitter at CarsonWinter3 or at his website CarsonWinter.com.